On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship. To that alone, the witness of the universe, do we bow. To that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Our topic today is wants and needs. The topic was inspired, uh, came to me actually from a, an interfaith panel discussion in which I participated a few weeks ago. I even mentioned it here at a church in Howard County uh, on sustainability and caring for the earth. We discussed uh, in that uh, discussion how religions might support sustainable living and earth care, the idea of caring for the earth. So that led to developing today's talk. And uh, the point that uh, keeps coming up, at least to me, is that the current rate of consumption of the earth's resources exceeds the earth's ability to renew them. So that means we're using up things faster than they're coming. So that's called unsustainable because it's all right for a while, but it doesn't go on. It can't go on like that forever. So this is a a relatively new challenge facing us as human beings on the planet because the earth always seemed large enough to bear everything. And it seems like uh, an infinite thing. If we just think of one person walking on the face of the earth, well, the earth is near about infinite. But uh, now we have nearly 7 billion brothers and sisters living on this planet. And when you take 7 billion people like that, the that population is pushing against the limits of the biosphere. We call the Earth system a, a biosphere. And uh, at the same time, the amount of consumption, how much of the things of the Earth we are using per person, that's also increasing in this country and all over the world. So this trend began, we can, see, we can say, with uh, when uh, what was called industrialization, when factories started coming up and things could be made in mass quantities. Before that, things were made by hand and uh, 
there weren't too many people living on the earth, so what was used was replenished by the earth. And uh, then there was a movement from agrarian society to urban society, and people started having all different kinds of occupations and would have leisure time and money which to spend. And gradually this consumption, uh, consuming of goods and materials took off. It started in the 19th century and really took off in the 20th century. And this is what is called, what, what we have now is what we call consumerism, which is actually, according to the dictionary, the theory that a progressively greater consumption of goods is economically beneficial. So a, a greater and greater consumption of goods, economically beneficial. That's our current situation. And, uh, of course, it is economically beneficial in the short term. But if we look in the long term, it can't be economically beneficial because the whole thing is bound to collapse at some point. So this is the story of the uh, in industrialized parts of the world. And this is expanding now, we find, to other parts of the world where it wasn't the case, like India and China. And... Uh, Swami Ranganathanandaji calls it a consumerist mania sweeping the world, a consumerist mania. It's fed by greed, we can say. Uh, it's a mania stimulated by advertising and television and movies. And there's a constant uh, creation of new desires. And new wants are created. And we're encouraged to spend a buck uh, there's a particularly devious phenomenon, it seems to me, this idea of planned obsolescence. The goods which are made are made, designed to wear out so that we buy a new one. So, uh, and then we have everything, disposable everything. As we say in India, use and throw, use and throw. Flashlights, eating utensils, cameras, even it, it's extending to husbands and wives, this is <laughs> so, and and this this uh, consumerist mania, it seems to me, has been uh, fully developed in this country, America. Everything here is bigger and more supersized, and it's not surprising, really, because America is the uh, stands for the ideal of freedom. And Swami Vivekananda also loved America for that reason, this ideal of freedom. Free, the free country, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of everything. But there's a negative side to that freedom. We feel that uh, that should be, we should be free to waste things if we want. We should be free to enjoy as much as we want. We, uh, we want freedom for the senses. Like a child who wants to be free to do whatever he wants, no matter what the consequences. So it's... Uh, of course, not the true freedom we know. The true freedom is not freedom for the senses, but freedom from the senses. We find in India the trend is, is more recent. Until recently, and I think still in many places, the uh, life in the rural villages of India is very simple. And a poor life, perhaps, but not impoverished. Poor, but not impoverished. 
untouched by television, life following the natural rhythms of the seasons and the days. No money to feed consumerism, but also not that terrible feeling of lack. There's a certain contentment we find. And in India, until recently, India always had use and throw. But use and throw meant you take a, a leaf from a tree, you put your, your dinner on it, you use it, and afterwards you throw it out and the cows will eat it or it will go back into the soil. And you drink your tea out of a little clay cup and you throw it and it goes back into the soil. So this kind of cycle we'll see is a very important idea. It's only recently that styrofoam and plastic have been introduced in India, and that's a disaster. This, actually, the styrofoam, this extruded polystyrene foam, was invented in 1959, it seems. When I returned to this country from staying six years in India, I was really shocked and stunned to visit the Home Depot. Now, I'd been to Home Depot before, but somehow I'd forgotten what, what is Home Depot. And we have one right around the corner. Uh, and don't tell Swami A that I'm, I'm telling bad about Home Depot. He, he loves the Home Depot. And as you know, you may have noticed, we have a new kitchen floor, which is uh, installed by himself and with the tiles purchased at Home Depot. So Home Depot has its place. But it was stunning to me because we find these, the building itself is enormous, a huge building. It must have cost millions of dollars. And these giant shelves stacked with goods, many of them made in China by poor, overworked, and underpaid Chinese laborers. And all for what? All just to sell stuff. All, and they're expanding. They're doing so well. Just the vast quantity of this represented to me the, the vast difference still between India and America in terms of uh, consumption and the simplicity of life. Swami Vivekananda said about this country in, uh, when he was here, take your country, which is the richest in the world and which is more luxurious than any other, and see how intense the, in the misery, how many more lunatics you have compared with other races, only because the desires are so keen. A man must keep up a high standard of living, and the amount of money he spends in one year would be a fortune to a man in India. You cannot preach to him of simple living because society demands so much of him. The wheel of society is rolling on. It stops not for the widow's tears or the orphan's wails. This is the state of things everywhere. It seems like his comments are relevant today also. And so it sometimes seems like a depressing state of affairs to think of all this. So in stark contrast to this stands the Vedic viewpoint, the integrated vision of the rishis, the Vedic rishis, in which life is seen as a cycle of give and take. The whole, the whole universe is involved in a grand symphony of 
give and take. And this is called a cosmic yagna. This is the term used, a yagna, a cycle of give and take. It is a network of interconnectedness. One's life is to be a participation in this cosmic yagna, in harmony with the cosmic order, which, which was called ritam. And in such a harmonious life, one obeys the spiritual laws governing the universe, such as the law of cause and effect, the law of sacrifice or unselfish action. And this is leading every being towards greater and greater spiritual unfoldment, ultimately bringing one to spiritual freedom, to complete emancipation, which comes upon realizing that one's true nature is itself the ever-free, ever-blissful divine reality. This term yagna is an essential term, an essential idea. It's difficult to translate. Swami Ranganathananda calls it a cosmic principle expressing what modern science has recognized as the interrelatedness of all things. So a cosmic principle expressing this interrelatedness of all things. It it encompasses unselfish action, sacrifice, participating in the great cycle in which everything depends upon everything else. If we take a, a, a little reflection, we a little reflection will reveal to us how everything is, uh, depends on everything else, how everything is so connected. And it may be nice just to give an example. If we take the example of, say, an apple. This morning in our uh, morning puja, we offered an apple in the puja. Now this apple, we purchased it at the market, but actually it came from an apple tree somewhere. I don't know where this particular apple came. It could have been an apple tree in, say, Pennsylvania. And uh, so it's dependent on that tree. And for that apple to grow, there had to be soil and sun and the rain. And, of course, rain and air and uh, wind will be there. You You won't get rain without the wind. You won't get rain without the oceans. So it's actually dependent on the oceans too, this apple. And uh, the strain of apples was developed over the centuries by apple farmers who cross-pollinated different varieties of apples to make this particular variety. So it's dependent on all those farmers who uh, developed that strain. Then uh, somebody had to pick that apple Maybe it was some migrant workers from Guatemala, or we don't know. Oftentimes the migrant workers do the picking of fruits in this country. And uh, they all have to eat and live somewhere. So it's dependent on not only on those pickers, but on the food that they have to eat to support their lives. That, that's all in this apple. Then it has to get to the market near here, Someone someone will have to drive a truck, probably. Now, what about that truck itself? 
that in that truck itself, there's everything again we find. So many thousands of parts made by, in different parts of the world. Some miners had to mine some steel and smelt it down into steel parts and rubber tires and uh, oil was pumped from a well in Texas or uh, Libya and refined into gasoline. And So we, if we start to examine a little bit any particular thing, we can find the whole world in it. So even in a simple apple, we can find the whole world. So in the Vedic conception, as we receive from the universe, so we must also give back to the universe. And this is symbolized in the tradition of the Panchamahayagnas, the five yagnas that every follower of the, of the spiritual life was to perform every day. And this was the uh, worship or sacrifice to the divine, Deva Yagna. Then Brahma Yagna is honoring the rishis, the sages who give the spiritual truth. And how do we do that? By studying the scriptures, by chanting the scriptures. Pitri Yagna, honoring our ancestors. This was done daily with a special kind of ritual offering of water. And then Nriyagna, the worship of fellow human beings through feeding them, perhaps. And the Bhuta Yagna, even the honoring of the animals, feeding some animals other than human beings. So these five uh, sacrifices, five yagnas were to be performed every day and uh, emphasizing this interconnectedness. In the Vedantic approach, everything is seen as sacred. The divine is within all, in the sun, the moon, the earth, fire, water, wind, sky, all these are manifestations of the divine. When we look at it this way, we find arising a deep reverence, a reverence for the earth and for, the, uh, for one's place in it. This cycle we find of interdependence, the Gita calls a chakra, a yajna chakra. Sri Krishna says, Evam pravartitam chakram nanu vartayati hayaha aghayurindriya ramo mogham parthasajivati One who in this world follows not the wheel of yajna thus set revolving, living a life of sin and being delighted in the senses, lives in vain. So a life of unrestrained consumption is a life lived in vain in this conception. A pure self, purely selfish life is a life lived in vain. A life in which we fail to play our role in the yajna chakra, fail to play our small part in the greater symphony, is a life lived in vain. Swami Vivekananda says, This life is short, the vanities of the world are transient, but they alone live who live for others. The rest are more dead than alive. In the Gita we also have this, uh, regarding this yajna, 
Cherish the devas with this yajna. Cherish the devas, and may the devas cherish you. Thus, cherishing one another, you shall gain the highest good. This parasparam bhavayanta, mutually cherishing one another. That is a beautiful attitude. The devas are the shining beings, sometimes conceived of as in some heaven, but also in the Vedic conception, the different aspects of the universe are, are ruled, as it were, by the different devas. So the earth and the sun, all these are conceived of as as devas, as shining ones, or as being guided by a deva. So if we take pure water from the rivers and return to the rivers polluted water, we are not doing this prasparam bhavayanta. We are not mutually cherishing. We are not living according to the law of yajna. If we take pure air from the sky and then fill the sky with exhaust fumes from a million factories, we are not mutually cherishing. If we take the pure fruits of the earth, but put into the earth only our garbage and poisons, we are not mutually cherishing. We are not living according to the law of yajna. And we know that every action has its reaction, its effect. Unrestrained consumption, this unrestrained delight in the senses, this indriyaramaha, as Sri Krishna calls it, has so many repercussions on many planes, the environmental problems, social problems, and personal problems. And it is a spiritual problem too, because it binds us to matter. It ties the mind to matter. We become slaves to matter. In fact, the whole world practically is slaves to matter. But... We read this last time. As Swami Vivekananda says, You are souls immortal, spirits free, blessed and eternal. Ye are not matter. Ye are not bodies. Matter is your servant, not you, the servant of matter. I was a little uh, unsure about uh, this talk today because usually our Vedanta lectures focus on some aspect of spiritual practice or personal spiritual life. But Vedanta applies in the bigger picture as well. Swami Vivekananda wanted a complete transformation of society. He taught that we have a responsibility to the greater whole. We must recognize our interconnectedness. We must see the divine in all and serve all beings as God. It is not enough to do a little japa, a little meditation, and as for the rest... Live, live and let live, or live and let die. So as Vedanta helps us to face personal challenges, so it will help us to face collective challenges also. Like this problem of overconsumption, leading to the challenges of environmental pollution, climate change, ozone depletion, and all these kinds of challenges. So the topic of wants and needs seemed 
appropriate for addressing this uh, topic, for, for discussing these things. Because in the context of the world imbalance, it seems that wants are so greatly out of proportion to needs. It seems like it's all out of balance. About needs, we can say, there are certain basic biological needs of the human organism. Air, water, food, shelter. These are the basic biological needs of the human organism. Before anything else, these have to be met. Before we take up, certainly before we are ready for any kind of Vedanta or any kind of religion. Sri Ramakrishna and Swami, Swami Vivekananda would, used to say, it is an insult to a starving people to offer them religion. It is an insult to a starving man to teach him metaphysics. And Sri Ramakrishna used to say, an empty stomach is no good for religion. So these basic needs certainly have to be met. And we find that we also have secondary needs. We are emotional, intellectual beings. We, need, we have emotional needs for love, affection, companionship, for understanding and knowing things, for aesthetic needs, for beauty, art, music, literature, the higher development, the higher human development rests on the foundation of the lower needs. The basic needs must be met before we can go higher. And then we have transcendent needs. The, this is the ultimate need, the call of the divine. After the basic biological and emotional needs are met, it is this need which cries out for fulfillment the attainment of freedom, spiritual emancipation. From deep within, we begin to hear this call, however faintly, the call to regain our true, blissful, divine self. We yearn to attain the freedom from want, the freedom from desire, the freedom from fear. So this is also a need, a higher need, and all we find are actually striving for this freedom. All are striving for freedom, but most don't realize they're striving backwards. They're striving to satiate desires by fulfilling them, trying to bring an end to wants by fulfilling them. There's a beautiful term we have in Vedanta. It's purnakamaha, purnakamaha. It means all desires are fulfilled, all desires are perfectly filled, or we can say stilled, that is, all desires are stilled because the desire of desires, the longing for attainment of God, the longing to regain our forgotten perfection has been fulfilled, and thus all desires are stilled. There was an ancient king, we know the story, called Yayati, and he wanted to uh, fulfill all his desires. He, we can feel that he wanted to attain the state of Purnakama, but he went about it uh, backwards at first. And uh, as the story goes, he was married to a beautiful woman named Devayani, who was the daughter of sage Shukra, Shukracharya. 
Now, uh, he managed to offend Shukracharya. Uh, he um, ended up marrying also Devayani's maid. And Shukracharya got furious and cursed him that he should lose his youth and become an old man then and there. So he was very upset. He, he told the, the sage, well, uh, but I, I'm not through with enjoyment. I, I'm married to your daughter. I'm not through with the enjoying the married life with your daughter. And these sages, when they tell a, a curse like that, they can't withdraw it. Once it leaves their lips, it's uh, fulfilled. But So he gave a, an extra qualifier that, well, if you can find someone who will take on your old age, they can, you can exchange. They can take your old age and you can have his youth. So, all right, he has five sons. He thought, surely one of my sons will agree. So he asked his uh, eldest son, but the son was not at all ready. He said, what? But dad, I'm just a young guy. I've just started enjoying life. What, you want me to become an old man now? I'm sorry, I can't do it. So likewise, the second son, the third son, and the fourth son, none of them were willing to take on Raja uh, Yayati's old age. But the youngest son was a good boy, and he had great respect for his father. And he said, well, father, you're, you're asking me for this? Yes. Uh, it is the son's duty to obey his father. You may have my youth. So um, Puru became an old man, and Yayati got his youth back. And for a thousand years, as the story goes, for a thousand years he enjoyed. Enjoyment after enjoyment after enjoyment. He was a king after all, so he could have all the best enjoyments of life. But a thousand years went by, and he found he's still craving for enjoyment. He's still craving. And then it finally dawned on him. Finally, at the time came when he realized that this is not the way he's going to get freedom from desires. And he went back to his wife, Devayani, and he told her, he told her this. All foods in the world, all animals, all wealth, and all women cannot bring satiety to a man whose mind is a victim of inordinate desire. Desire is never satisfied by the enjoyment of its objects. Like fire fed with ghee, it only flames up all the more. For a full thousand years I have been having every kind of sensuous enjoyment, but in place of subsiding, the craving for them comes with added force whenever situations arise. Therefore, I shall now abandon hankering for everything and then giving over my mind entirely to him, to the Lord. I shall wander with the animals in the forest. So he gave his son Puru's youth back to him. How he still had his youth after a thousand years, that's part of the, the, that's part of the story. He still had it after a thousand years because that's the way the story goes. And he gave his son's youth back to him and turned the kingdom over to him and he became a wandering ascetic, a wandering monk and dedicated to realizing God. And he did realize, the, realize God and then he attained this Purnakamaha where all desires are stilled. This is the verse, the famous verse about the ghee. Najatu kama kama nam Upabhogena shamyati avisha krishna varatmeva bhuye eva vivardhate. We find sometimes 
most pathetic results of, of trying to satiate desire like this. I was reminded actually of Imelda Marcos, the, who had the, her, those thousands of pairs of shoes, more shoes than she could ever possibly wear in a lifetime. And yet, this, somehow trying to, to uh, fulfill some kind of crazy desire. So fortunately, just as with Yayati, an end does come. Swami Vivekananda says, There comes a time when the mind awakes from this long and dreary dream. The child gives up its play and wants to go back to its mother. It finds the truth of the statement, Desire is never satisfied by the enjoyment of desires. It only increases the more as fire when butter is poured upon it. This is true of all sense enjoyments, of all intellectual enjoyments, and of all the jo- enjoyments of which the human mind is capable. So a time does come when we have had enough, when the need for transcendence overpowers these uh, our little wants and desires. Then we realize that we must transcend not only sense enjoyments, but more subtle enjoyments as well. As Swamiji says, these intellectual enjoyments and all the kinds of enjoyments of which the mind is capable. But we, of course, will start from where we stand now. We're not all ready to throw off everything and go wandering with Yayati in the forest. So the Vedic rishis had a beautiful, uh, developed a beautiful system of the Purusharthas, the uh, four goals of life. I think we are familiar with them. The Dharma, Artha, Kama, Moksha. We are... These legitimate goals and helpful goals for us in our life, in our march towards spiritual unfoldment and attaining the Supreme. We have certain desires for enjoyment. Certainly, we are uh, to fulfill those. But, and we are permitted, we, we should certainly seek wealth to help us fulfill those desires and to help uh, serve all beings. But these strivings will be regulated by the principle of dharma, this principle of uh, unselfishness. We will be uh, enjoying according to yajna, according to the principle of yajna, adding unselfishness to us, recognizing the interconnectedness of all things. And we know that ultimately there is a spiritual goal, which is the ultimate and final and the goal which which uh, supersedes all these uh, proximate goals we swamis you know we swamis sometimes speak in in very strong terms about the renunciation and uh, please remember we are swamis so we have to uh, remind ourselves of our ideal uh, the uh, there is uh, one, uh, you know, I felt it, uh, sorry because one of our, one of my friends hearing some of our uh, lectures, he was extremely embarrassed when I came to know that he had purchased a new and costly camera. And I felt quite uh, sorry that he felt embarrassed because uh, 
there's nothing wrong with uh, buying a camera and it, the, that plays a role in the aesthetic part of life. No? Now, if he had bought 10 cameras, then I would think he might have some cause for being embarrassed. But uh, Sri Ramakrishna would uh, encourage the devotees like this. He would say, there's no harm. There's no harm in chewing betel leaf, in eating fish, smoking, or rubbing the body with oil. Now, he didn't know about the health issues of smoking at those times, so keep that in mind. But he means these kind of, these kind of enjoyments. There is no harm in chewing betel leaf, eating fish, smoking, or rubbing the body with oil. What will one achieve by renouncing only these things? The one thing needful is the renunciation of lust and gold. That renunciation is the real and supreme renunciation. Householders should go into solitude now and then to practice spiritual discipline in order to cultivate devotion to God. They should renounce mentally. But the sannyasi should renounce both mentally and physically. So it is mental renunciation that Sri Ramakrishna calls us to take up. It is in the mind that the deep attachments are found, and it is in the mind that it is the mind that wants and craves. So it is in the mind that we need to overcome this craving, this wanting, this ever greater wanting. I have a friend uh, who is now a deacon in the Catholic Church, and his, he told me about his experience in the seminary, which is very pertinent here in our discussion of wants and needs. They were required to live a fairly austere life in the seminary, and he was, uh, the, all the seminarians had a small room. He, he had a small room to himself, furnished with a bed and a desk, and a desk chair. And anything else, if he felt he needed anything else, he was permitted to take to have it sent from home or to acquire it somehow, and he could keep it for a week in the room. And after the week, he would meet regularly with his director, spiritual director, and uh, the director would say, well, this new thing which you have, do you need it or do you just want it? And then he would have to give the answer. So he got a bookcase for keeping books, and at the end of a week he was asked, well, this bookcase, do you need it, or do you just want it? And, no, I, re- I really need it. I have a lot of books. I, I, they, they'll be all messy. I really need this. Fine. So he could keep the bookcase. Then he thought it would be very good to have a nice, stuffed, easy chair in which to sit and read also. So he asked for that, and it was sent from home. And after a week, he was asked, well, do you need this or do you just want it? Well, he had to confess, well, I guess I just want it. So it had to be sent back home. And uh, the same case, he thought he would like to listen to music. So some kind of uh, radio or the tape player or whatever it was, he had brought in. And after a week, he had to send that one back too. It turns out he didn't really need that, he just wanted it. So he had the fort- good fortune to have a full week to think over whether he really needed something or just wanted it. But uh, we are faced, we are presented day in and day out with this same choice. Do we need it 
or do we just want it? This is the choice between Shreyas and Preyas, which Yama presented to Nachiketa in the Kata Upanishad. This is the choice between the preferable and the pleasurable, between the electable and the delectable, between nivriti and pravriti. And we don't get uh, oftentimes a week in which to decide. The, the funny thing is that uh, it's a curious phenomenon that uh, what we formerly only wanted becomes a, a need. Uh, I could, we could call it need escalation. What was once a want has become a need. For There's a very easy example we can think of, which is what most everybody here has in your pockets right now, which is a cell phone. Now, how many of us can do without a cell phone? Many of us, I think, will feel that we really need it. It has become a need for most people. But 25 years ago, it wasn't a need. It wasn't even a want because they didn't exist. Nobody wanted one because maybe a few engineers were thinking about it and thinking, yes, I really want this. Otherwise, nobody, we, we got along just fine without them. So the want was created and gradually it became a need. Sri Ramakrishna was unable to accept anything he didn't need. Once he was going with Yogin, the future Swami Yogananda, to a devotee's home and they had gotten in the carriage and the carriage had started moving and he asked, hey, did you bring my bathing towel? And Yogin said, oh, I forgot. Anyhow, I'm sure the devotees will be very happy to give you a new one. Stop, stop the carriage, go to my room and get it. He, wouldn't, uh, he became very uh, anxious and until Yogin had brought his own bathing towel because he didn't need another one. And in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, we find in uh, 1884, uh, M was in the carriage with Sri Ramakrishna. They were going uh, back to Dakshineshwar. The carriage rolled along Bura Bazar. Everywhere there were signs of great festivity. The night was dark, but illuminated with myriads of lights. The carriage drove on. The master noticed that M had brought some cloths for him. M had with him two pieces of unbleached and two pieces of washed cloth. But the master had asked him only for the unbleached ones. He said to M, Give me the unbleached ones. You may keep the others. All right, you may give me one of them. M, then shall I take back one piece? Master, then take both. M, as you please, sir. Master, you can give me those when I need them. You see, yesterday Benny Pal wanted me to carry away some food for Ramlal. I told him I couldn't. It is impossible for me to lay up for the future. M, that's all right, sir. I shall take back the two pieces of washed cloth. Master, tenderly, don't you see, if any desire arises in my mind, it is for the good of you all. You are my own. I shall tell you if I need anything. M. Humbly. Yes, sir. Sri Ramakrishna was a monk. He lived at the very basic need level. He couldn't accept anything over and beyond that. 
I don't know if many of you know about Peace Pilgrim, uh, but I'd like to just read a little. She made an observation of one of her uh, friends. Peace Pilgrim said, I remember a dear lady who was up in years. She was working so hard and always complaining. I finally said to her, Why in the world do you need to work so hard when you have only yourself to support? And she said, Oh, I have to pay rent on a five-room house. A five-room house, I replied. But you are alone in the world. Couldn't you live happily in one room? Oh, yes, she said sadly. But I have furniture for a five-room house. (laughs) She was actually working her fingers to the bone to provide a proper home for that furniture. And it happens all the time. All I can say is, don't let it happen to you, says Peace Pilgrim. This is called being possessed by one's possessions. Possessed by one's possessions. Peace Pilgrim says, I realize that if you don't have enough, you won't be happy. Neither are you happy if you have too much. It is those who have enough, but not too much, who are the happiest. This happiness, it's good to remember these different levels of happiness. There is Vishayananda, as Sri Ramakrishna calls it, Vishayananda, the happiness in the senses, good food, nice possessions. It's ephemeral. It is valid. It is valid, no doubt. A certain amount of it is needed, but unchecked, as we have seen, unchecked, this destroys. And more subtle we have is happiness from of aesthetic appreciation. This can actually help the mind pierce the veils covering the spirit, obscuring the spirit. Ultimately also ephemeral. We have happiness of higher thought, of philosophy. We have a very important shamasukha, the joy of self-control. There's a joy in the mastery over the senses. Bhajanananda, the joy of worship. And the highest joy, Brahmananda. This is the joy which sets at naught all other joys attained in God-realization. To gain the higher joy, this is the thing. To gain the higher joy, we have to leave the lower joy behind. Sri Ramakrishna often gave the example of a drink made of sugar candy. Once we taste that, we no longer relish a drink made of ordinary molasses. But as long as we are satisfied with molasses, why should we try for sugar candy? So we can take up a wonderful project which is called Training the Senses. This is actually Eknath Eswaran's term, one of, his eight, uh, one of the steps in his eightfold system. And it's a wonderful project, Training the Senses. We remember in the Katopanishad, the simile of a chariot is given where the, the, the self is the rider in the chariot and the charioteer is the buddhi, the intellect and the horses are the senses and the mind is the, the reins and the horses have to be trained if the horses are poorly trained and the charioteer is not paying attention the chariot will come to wreck 
on the side of the road. So training these horses is an essential thing. There's so many areas in which we have the opportunity to train the senses in what we eat, what we buy, what we, what we take in through television, movies, reading. So we, we train the senses to give up what is merely tasty for what is truly beneficial. And we know that this project, is, it, it tastes like poison at first, but it tastes like nectar afterwards. In this project, it's really the thoughts which are so important. If we can learn to watch the thoughts, and we develop an awareness of how much our thinking is shaped, not by uh, what we uh, uh, choose, but by the world around us, by the television, by the advertising, by the mass media, by the news, the news programs. Yeah, advertising particularly is designed to create wants in us. It has that very particular purpose to make us feel uncomfortable for lacking something, to make us feel afraid for lacking something, to make us feel uh, greedy to have something, and to make that feeling feel perfectly good and that the best thing is to satisfy that desire. And it's very subtle because the advertising, it looks just nice on the television. We see nice, they make nice jokes and nowadays they, they spend a lot of money and nice good actors are playing these nice little parts. They have a little skit and it looks nice. But under, very subtly it's giving the message, you should feel afraid because you don't have this life insurance or you should feel very worried because you have this dandruff problem. And uh, so you should, you must buy this life insurance or this shampoo or this dish soap or whatever it may be. So, uh, and it makes it feel perfectly normal. Uh, so we, we can watch that. And the, 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 the thing is that the, the mass media, it's, it says there is nothing higher than matter. So go ahead and fulfill your desires because there's nothing higher than matter. That's where you're going to get joy. Only there in matter will you get joy and peace. So go enjoy and be happy. This is the real materialism. Only matter exists. And this leads directly to this consumerist mania. So if we can find that the message of Vedanta is that this is entirely backwards. We are not matter. We are spirit and uh, this is the antidote also for the consumerist mania, to remember that we are spirit, to affirm that we are spirit, to remember that, uh, and to strive to realize that we are spirit and to see the spirit in all our brothers and sisters, all seven billion of our brothers and sisters on this earth. So I'd like to close with a reading, uh, a couple of quotes from Swami Vivekananda about serving our brothers and sisters. Why should we do it? Swami Vivekananda says, as by continuing our religious practices, we gradually develop a certain determined tendency for it. So by performing disinterested work, over and over again, even unwillingly, we gradually find the will merging itself in it. The inclination to work for others develops in this way. It is necessary for one's good, for one's own good, 
We become forgetful of the ego when we think of the body as dedicated to the service of others, the body with which most complacently we identify the ego. And in the long run comes the consciousness of disembodiedness. The more intently you think of the well-being of others, the more oblivious of self you become. In this way, as gradually your heart gets purified by work, you will come to feel the truth that your own self is pervading all beings and all things. Thus it is that doing good to others constitutes a way, a means, of revealing one's own self or Atman. And then his beautiful call written to Sister Nivedita. One idea that I see clear as daylight is that misery is caused by ignorance and nothing else. Who will give the world light? Sacrifice in the past has been the law. It will be, alas, for ages to come. The earth's bravest and best will have to sacrifice themselves for the good of many, for the welfare of all. Buddhas by the hundred are necessary with eternal love and pity. Religions of the world have become lifeless mockeries. What the world wants is character. The world is in need of those whose life is one burning love, selfless. That love will make every word tell like thunderbolt. Bold words and bolder deeds are what we want. Awake, awake, great ones. The world is burning with misery. Can you sleep? Let us call and call till the sleeping gods awake, till the god within answers to the call. What more is in life? What greater work? The details come to me as I go. I never make plans. Plans grow and work themselves. I only say, awake, awake. Sarvobhadrani Pashyatu Sarvasad Buddhimapnotu Sarvasarvatranandatu Sarve Bhavantu Supinaha Sarve Santu Niramaya Sarve Bhadrani Pashyantu Makaschid Dukhabhag Bhavid Durjana Sajjano Bhuyat Sajjana Shanti Mapnuyat Shanto mucheta bandhe bhyo muktaschanyam vimochayet swasti prajavyaf paripalayantam nyayena margena mahi mahisha go brahmane bhyashubhamastu nityam loka samasta sukino bhavantu loka samasta sukino bhavantu Om Shanti 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 May all be freed from dangers, may all realize what is good, may all be actuated by noble thoughts, may all rejoice everywhere, may all beings be happy, may all be free from disease, may all realize what is good, may none be subject to misery, may the wicked become virtuous, may the virtuous attain tranquility, May the tranquil be free from bonds. May the freed make others free. May good betide all people. May the sovereign rule the earth, following the righteous path. May all beings ever attain what is good. May the worlds be prosperous and happy. Om, peace, peace.
Peace.